Hi. Welcome and welcome back. So if you don't know, my name is Laura and you are currently listening to a podcast called Never To Be Seen Again. If you arrived here on accident, it's okay. Just stay and I'm going to tell you something interesting. I hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode and the bonus episode that I threw in. Um, I'll be doing more bonus episodes in the future, so keep an eye out for those. They won't always be about the same thing, though, so sometimes I just find things uh, I know I want to tell you about, uh, but they don't fit for regular episodes. So this week, as you might have guessed, we are in Kentucky, and I have a nice little change in today's episode. But before I get to the cases, we need to take care of the business. So... As always, if you like this podcast, do me a favor, like it, favorite it, follow it, or rate it. If any of those are an option on whatever platform you listen on, you can also share this episode or the podcast on social media and tell your friends to give it a listen. I also wanted to point out that if you are listening on the Anchor app, the way to favorite this podcast is by going into the podcast's profile and tapping on that favorite star It'll be above the episode list. Also, in case anyone wasn't aware, you can listen to me on Spotify if you're a Spotify listener. It's really simple. You just have to search uh, for the podcast name, and it should pop right up. Um, I am sad to report, however, that as of the time of this recording, I have not reached the Apple Podcast platform yet. Their approval process takes a little bit longer, but it is in the works, so just stay tuned for that. Oh, and if you have noticed a difference in the sound quality after episode two, you can thank my new microphone. I'm sorry that I made y'all deal with poor sound quality for the first couple of episodes, but hopefully we have it fixed now, and we're going to proceed ahead just a little bit clearer from now on. So now with the business out of the way, we can talk about this week's cases. So uh, I said this week I was going to be, I was going to do something a little bit different, And that is because I'm not covering two missing persons this week. I'm covering four persons this week. And I'm going to start this week with the case of Clayton Lynn McCarter and Rodney Michael Scott. So let me tell you about Rodney first. In NamUs, he is case number MP24120. He has a profile on the Charlie Project But his and Clayton's case are more recent, so the Doe Network does not have either of their case in their online database. So Rodney, or Mikey, as he is also called, was born on March 5th of 2000. He was 13 at the time of his disappearance, and he is 19, almost 20 now. Uh, He is a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. And at the time of his disappearance, he stood about 5'4", and he was between 110 and 120 pounds. Rodney also has a small birthmark on his forehead uh, that would make him a little more distinguishable. He was last seen wearing a black jacket and socks with no shoes. Uh, but of course, I'm sure he had more on than that. They just don't provide any more of a description than that. Now let me tell you about Clayton. In NamUs, uh, he is case number MP24119, and he also has a profile on the Charlie Project. In fact, uh, his and Rodney's Charlie Project profiles are linked, so you can get to one from the other. 
Clayton was born on May 16th of 1998, and he was 15 when he disappeared. He'd be 21 now. He's a white male with brown hair and blue eyes, and at the time of his disappearance, um, he stood about 5'11 and weighed 160 pounds. He had a pierced left ear, but he wasn't wearing an earring uh, at the time of his disappearance, and also his head was shaved around that time. He was last seen wearing a t-shirt over a collared shirt and pajama pants. He, too, had socks on with no shoes. So, the thing about Clayton is that he has a few medical conditions. So, Clayton suffers from Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, as you might know it. And uh, he suffers from Oppositional Defiance Disorder, or ODD, as you might know it. He also has a, a mental disability in which he functions at the level of a five-year-old. And until the time of his disappearance, he had taken psychiatric medication since early childhood. So Rodney and Clayton were living at a place uh, called Potter Children's Home in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I'm going to try to explain to the best of my ability what Potter Children's Home is. So from what I found, it's like a campus where there are multiple ho little homes, or as they call them, cottages. So there are married couples who live on this campus, and they act as foster parents to uh, children. And the purpose of this is to offer children in the foster care system uh, the structure of a two-parent household. And the children have to go to school and attend church, and they're also provided counselors um, to speak to regularly. But they also provide a program they call SPARK, which is designed to assist uh, single parent families that are, be, are, that are having difficulties. So if one of the parents just recently died or the, the parents are going through divorces, they kind of step in and assist. Uh, they provide housing uh, and food, uh, housing, food, transportation, and counseling all through this SPARK program. And it's all in an effort to help that family get back on their feet. So this place and these programs are all very Christian-based, which is fine and great. But I'm not going to lie to y'all. When I was reading about this place on their website, I just didn't have a, a great feeling not that anything that I saw was wrong. It just made me feel uneasy for some reason. But that might just be me and my multiple degrees of paranoia. Um, but, you know, check it out yourself and see what you think. So I tell you about this place because I was really trying to figure out why Clayton and Rodney were living at this facility. But I gained no clarity from my research um, so I can't tell you why, because I still don't know why. So on Wednesday, January 15th of 2014, Clayton and Rodney were seen together in the 300 block of Chestnut Street in Bowling Green. Clayton was in his pajamas and neither boy is wearing shoes, only socks, and it's cold outside. That was the last time either of the boys has ever been seen. Police speculate that the boys just ran away together 
That conclusion was probably drawn based on the fact that Rodney had actually ran away earlier in the month, but he had returned a short time later. It is believed that the two boys stayed together, and law enforcement tells the public that they believe that they may still be in the area, but Rodney has family in the Knoxville area, and they could have gone in that direction as well. It's been six years since their disappearance, and these boys are not juveniles anymore, but where they are is still a mystery to anyone who cares about them. For me, I think these boys could still be alive if they actually left on their own free will. If they didn't make that decision, though, well, that makes this a completely different story. And I have to be honest, uh, sometimes I get a little frustrated with these quote-unquote runaway cases. I know y'all have heard me talk about uh, sex trafficking in the beginning of a previous episode, and this is the kind of missing case where that possibility applies. Unfortunately, though, I think sometimes people's minds uh, become closed when you label a juvenile missing persons case as a runaway. And I understand why, I suppose. Uh, I think it's because a lot of the time, it's like the story of the boy who cried wolf. Every time the police or media report on these runaways. Unfortunately, though, sometimes that wolf does come and he might just eat your baby. Uh, I'm sure everyone has their speculations about what happened to Rodney and Clayton and where they are, which is fine because at least you're thinking about them. But I found something while I was researching these cases that I want to share with you. Now, I am making no claims that this information is true or valid. I just want to provide you with it and allow you to draw your own conclusion about it. Also, I cannot confirm that the person making this statement is actually real and close to this case or related in any way. So, I found a forum post on amwfans.com, that's America's Most Wanted Fans, if you didn't know, where these boys' pictures are posted with a brief synopsis of the circumstances of their case. And on this site, they have the option to comment on the posts uh, that are made. And I was reading through the comments on Rodney and Clayton's posts when I found this one by Angel Wings on uh, February 24th of 2016. So that was two years after their disappearance. And I'm going to read it to you as it is written, but there are some grammatical errors but I think you'll I think you'll be able to understand uh, what Angel Wings is attempting to say. Quote, Hi, I'm Rodney's Scott's aunt. He is 14 years old, and they have it all wrong. The boys were at a juvenile center, not their home. Rodney was with a foster parent before and Rodney had got in trouble, and foster parent tried to talk Rodney's mom into letting him keep and hide Rodney so he wouldn't get in trouble. Of course, she said no and had him placed there. But 45 minutes 
before they escaped, Rodney was on phone with foster parent. Rodney would not leave in my dark, which he is terrified of, in five degree weather with no shoes or jacket unless someone was waiting on him. Every lead goes back to foster parent, which works for a mysterious herbal company that travels. I just hope they are safe and hiding and not being exploited. The foster parent has hidden his nephew for a year and his current wife until she turned of age and married her. It's so aggravating not being able to do anything. End quote. <clears throat> now, you could take that as you will. Um, so, there are age progression photos of Rodney and Clayton on their perspective Charlie Project profile pages. And they also have photos of what they look like around the time of their disappearance. The Bowling Green Police Department is the investigating agency. So, if you have any information in regards to Rodney and Clayton's case, you can contact them. Their phone number is on the Charlie Project profile. Also, if you think you've seen someone matching Clayton or Rodney's description, uh, you can contact Bowling Green PD or you can contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children via their website at www.missingkids.org or you can call their 24-hour call center at 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. Clayton and Rodney, if you're out there, everyone just wants to know that you're okay. Please let someone know where you are. And anyone that may know where Clayton and Rodney are, please just help them get back home. So our next couple of cases are coming out of Corbin, Kentucky. And let me tell you about the disappearance of Claude Taylor and Martha Sue Shelton. As always, let me tell you about what they look like before we get into the circumstances of their case. Uh, I'll tell you about Claude first. He is uh, case number 4079DMKY in the Doe Network and case number MP2059 in NamUs. He and Martha Sue have linked uh, Charlie Project profiles. Claude was born on August 8th of 1934 and was 37 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 86 now if he is still alive. He is approximately 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, and weighed 170 pounds when he disappeared. He is a white male with brown hair and brown eyes. Uh, he has a scar on his upper left arm that would make him recognizable. His wife, Martha Sue, is case number 2795DFKY in the Doe Network and case number MP2057 in NamUs. Martha Sue was uh, born on January 14th of 1944 and was 27 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 75 now. Uh, there's about a 10-year age difference between Claude and Martha. Martha stands between 5'2 and 5'4 and weighed 135 pounds um, at the time of her disappearance. She is a white female 
who had uh, light brown hair with highlights, and she has blue hair, uh, blue eyes. I'm sorry. She was also known to wear a wedding band and another ring that is described as a silver braided, uh, like a rope ring with uh, inset blue with a single inset blue stone. In the early morning hours of May 21st, 1971, Claude and Sue returned to their home in Gary's trailer park on 18th Street in Corbin. They had been visiting uh, family and friends on that day. They tucked their three children into bed and decided to head back out to grab something to eat. Their 11-year-old daughter, Sheila, is laying in bed, not yet asleep, when she believes she overhears them talking about going to King's Truck Stop, which is about five miles, or was about five miles away from their house. She overhears her father ask her mother, are you going to go with me or stay here? It's about 2 a.m. on the 21st when Claude and Sue leave in their 1967 white Ford Galaxy, presumably for a quick trip to King's. The children wake up later in the morning to find that their parents had not returned. Concerned, they contact a family friend and that friend contacted law enforcement. Police begin to investigate and they head over to the King's truck stop. Workers at the truck stop report that they hadn't seen Claude or Sue that morning and they never saw that vehicle either. It is also reported that Claude and Sue had been saving money in a jar or a bowl in the house and when they disappeared the approximately $600 was gone too. Neither Claude or Sue or that vehicle has ever been seen again. It's been almost 49 years now. So Claude and Sue's three children moved to their grandmother's house in Knoxville after the disappearance of their parents and they still search for answers as adults now. And while it may appear uh, that it could be the case, it is not believed that Claude and Sue abandoned their children and ran away. Claude had been working for the same company for 10 years before he went missing, and by all accounts, both Claude and Sue were attentive and loving parents. Some relatives and friends even claim that it was odd that Claude and Sue would leave their children at home alone that night. But if you believe that they ran away, well, then leaving the kids alone for the first time would fit right into that narrative, especially if you consider the missing money and what Sheila had overheard her father ask her mother. But the police believe, uh, believe foul play is involved. Some people theorize that Claude and Sue pulled over for some reason on that five-mile trip maybe to help a stranded motorist or they were flagged down or something went wrong with their vehicle and that is where they met their demise. Because this case is almost 50 years old, you have to consider too that the area has changed over time. 
So what you might see today as you travel through that area is not what was there 50 years ago. In fact, even the trailer park and the truck stop don't exist anymore. What has stayed the same, however, are the bodies of water in the area. So from 1964 to 1974, there was a dam being built on the Laurel River Lake in that area. And it is during that time uh, period when Claude and Sue go missing. If you consider that, along with the fact that their vehicle has never been found, you can theorize that the vehicle and maybe Claude and Sue's bodies are in the Laurel River Lake or any other body of water body of water in that area and that is why they have never been found now you can think about that in a few ways if Claude and Sue did meet foul play on that morning it would be easy for a killer to drive their vehicle with them inside into a body of water and poof no evidence no bodies also, what if they just got into an accident and the vehicle left the roadway and ended up in the water and hasn't, has never been found? Also, though, if you subscribe to the idea that they voluntarily walked away from their life, they could have dumped that vehicle in a body of water and walked away, never to be seen again. There's also a more unlikely idea that Claude, whom I assume was driving, drove the vehicle into the water, killing both himself and Sue. The thing is, though, that all we really have are theories. Because for almost 50 years, there has been no clues to suggest where Claude and Sue are or what happened to them. This case is probably the coldest case I have ever covered to date. And I would love it if this case could be solved before the 50-year anniversary of Claude and Sue's disappearance. But that would mean that there is only about a year for law enforcement to find out what happened. Personally, I'm going to cross my fingers and say a little prayer that that's what happens. So, uh, the Kentucky State Police is currently the investigating agency in this case, so all tips, information, or sightings can be reported to them. Their phone number is uh, on the triad of websites, and there are also photos of Claude and Sue around the time of their uh, time of their disappearance, as well as photos of the vehicle that they were in um, when they disappeared. I surely hope that their children find answers about what happened to their parents during their lifetime. So those are my four missing persons uh, this week. I hope that you found these cases as interesting as I did. And if you do, share it with your friends. Uh, tell them about the podcast. Tell them about these stories. Uh, tell them about these cases. And let's not give up hope that these cases will be resolved. So, thanks everyone for listening. And listen in next week as I tell you a couple of more cases of those 
never to be seen again.